Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hey, my sweetness, my love. Yeah, so we I look at those my, my stats. Pride, you, be, you be good boy today? Uh, I try to be a good boy. I try to be. As long as I try, I feel like I'm moving forward. Because if I say that I'm going to be a good boy and I am a good boy, then my ego gets in the way and I, I totally ruins the vibe. So I have to say try because I can get into that little happy medium. Well, you know the old, the old uh, Mae West joke? There was um, a movie where she um, decides to take over this class of uh, very rough boys. Like, you know, it, it, it's in the old West, the one room schoolhouses where you had like, you know, kids of all ages and you've got some real rough farm boys there. So the teacher quits and she decides she's going to take over and try to teach the class. So she says, OK, let's look at the board. And she says, let's read the sentences. It says, I am a I am a good boy. I was a good boy. I will be a good boy. And then she turns to the class and says, what is this, propaganda? Ah, cute. But I'm bummed. Uh, so today's topic uh, we talked about earlier, and I think I'm going to go first with my explanation, and then well, you'll tell. What about what, what about what about the money topic? Yeah, well, th we got plenty of time, so we'll work it through. Okay. okay. All right. The first question: Will you still want your father to be your father in your next life? And um, there were certain aspects of my father. Yes, certain aspects of my father that, let's put it this way: uh, if he were to brush up on his disciplinary tactics and become more say like um is psychologically sensitive and aware you see my father was from the old school my father was raised by um his father who was a ukrainian immigrant and let's put it this way i was once discussing discipline with um your pediatrician dr wolf mm -hmm. He passed away? And yes. When did he pass away? Um, before I moved to Florida, when, we, when I was still, um, uh, I asked doctor, um, uh, the doctor that took over after he retired that I used for, you know, your, for you kids and for your younger siblings at the time. And he told me okay. that um, he had passed away. So um, anyway, he was, he had been an Air Force pediatrician. And he had, he serviced people all over the world. He said that it seemed to him that discipline, disciplining children, was a very cultural thing. He says there were some cultures that did not believe in laying a hand on the kids, that did not believe in like physical punishments at all, that they were totally, um, you know, like, how can I say it? They were totally, um, uh, like reward oriented, you know, rewards, um, you know, verb, you know, maybe um, remove if for if you really need to discipline your child, removing privileges. Then he says there were some cultures that, whoa, the belt. I call I call it the belt therapy. Yeah. <laughs> there are some cultures who use the belt therapy. And he said he noticed that the two cultures that were most in to real hardcore physical punishment were the Ukrainians and the Poles. Wow. And and my and my family came from both of those areas. So I got it from both ends. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I agree with that because I was thinking about, you know, Tati and you know, if 
if mental health was properly taken care of, if, you know, the disciplinary methods were more along the lines of a softer approach. And I think also if, if, if men, I guess boomer men had this like stoic, not talking about my feelings, not talking about certain stuff. I know, I know he was very like expressive certain times, but I feel like I couldn't, I didn't get to know as much as I wanted to. You know, I felt like if I had, I would like him to be my father in a future, you know, life. But I think I would want him on a more docile side, a more relaxed side. Because I think he was very open-minded and very understanding to a point. But I think a lot of his emotions got in the way of what he wanted to really be. I I would agree with that. I think... um the the natural tendency for any parent is we usually fall into the trap of raising our kids the way we were raised. I often heard, I've heard my mother say that. My mother often said to me, I raised you the way I was raised. Whoa, well, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. You know, I mean, uh, I, I hope you're, let's put it this way, I hope you um, were... You, know, you had to wear body armor and <laughs> the blows didn't hurt so badly. <laughs> you know, that, that's the way you were raised. Or to put it um, mildly, it's, uh, I once heard Michael Savage see on one of his programs, because he also was from a, you know, a, an Ashkenazic Jewish background, you know, Polish-Ukrainian background. And he said that he's totally convinced that in that culture, that verbal and physical child abuse was considered part of good upbringing. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is that you want to break the vicious cycle to the best of your ability. I know yes. that's why I, you know, I'm doing whatever I can, reading books and working on myself every day to make sure that I don't make the mistakes my parents made. But that's not a knock on the uh, on the parents, though. That's not that's just life in general, because, you know, everyone's eyesight is 2020 hindsight's 2020. Sorry. Um, when it comes to like child discipline child growth how to raise your child you know because you're always going to have those moments looking back and saying maybe my parents should have done something different but that that that's why i i think a lot of times people get defensive when we talk about new age child ra raising because people feel like it's an attack on them but it's not an attack on them it's just an improvement of what's been you know, I'm pretty sure you would mm -hmm. want your father, but you wouldn't, you would want your father, just like what I said, like a, on a more docile tone, but yeah, that, but as a survival mechanism for someone who went through World War II and the Great Depression and was raised by people who survived the pogroms, like he did the best he could with what he had. I think you're right about that. I mean, there were aspects of my father where he was very close. I remember um, walk, taking walks with him. I remember him telling me his interesting stories from World War II. I remember him telling me stories from, he was very much into history, he was a history buff. And he used to tell me stories from, actual stories from history that he read in real, you know, in actual history books. Um, he, I mean, at the age of nine, he was, he told me about, um, uh, basically, you know, like, 
he also discussed the difference between capitalism and communism. I mean, at the age of nine, I knew who Marx and Engels was were. Interesting. And but he taught me communism um, as a system of government to be avoided. In other words, he didn't teach me communism in a pot. You know, he taught me the negative aspects of communism, which are, as you look around the world, are very real. I mean, co- you know, those countries around the world who have embraced communism, they're they're they're, go- they're going down the tubes. Yeah. They're the gov- What happens in the end is that the governments, the government officials, wind up taking most of the money, you know, from you know people working, like you know, oh from you know, from each according to their abilities to each according to the needs. Yeah, right. You know, the government takes most of what the people make and the people virtually wind up being slaves to the government and getting yeah. very little. Well, um, it's interesting you said that because I remember growing up as a kid and you treating me like an adult on that end where it's the education, the responsibility um, I didn't feel like I was treated like a child. I felt more like an equal. You know, I mean, I did have some frustrations growing up as a child and teenager, like anybody has, where you feel like you're not listened to and you 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 can't get a word in edgewise. But you know, I grew up with nine siblings. That's because you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, <laughs> I remember one time when I said to you one time, um, one of one of you, it was either you or one of your brothers or sisters said to me one time about that they didn't want to do something. And that I wanted them, I forgot what this clean the room, you know, one of the typical things, take out the trash, clean the room, yada, yada. I didn't want it. And I said to whichever one, I forgot which child it was. It might have been all of you that I said this to. I said, I said, um, since when has what you wanted been of interest to me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was also going to comment on something you said earlier about different cultures raising their kids differently. And I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about um, somebody who went to a reservation in America uh, with Native Americans. And they do uh, peyote as a family. And children consume it. But it's together and it's a whole ritual. And I remember listening to um, this uh, psychiatrist, and uh, uh, the psychotherapist, I think. And he was talking about how the way you experience various drugs and alcohol, it affects you the way you perceive how it's consumed. And I think it's very interesting because I know growing up going to Fabrengans, I mean, I was first exposed to alcohol when I was six, but I never consumed it to excess or to get drunk until I was 18 because I I realized the Kedusha, the holiness and the importance of the alcohol used in the Fabrengan in order to elevate yourself. And I found it interesting because some of my friends who didn't grow up like that, you know, took alcohol on, on a different level. So like by the time they were 16, they were just getting drunk with their friends, you know, at, at home just for the, for the hell of it, not really for anything else. I've heard this, this um, years ago, there was this Dr. Laura Sessinger and um, her father was Jewish. Her mother was not. And then I don't know, she, it, she converted to Judaism, I think, through Chabad, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Things didn't work out eventually. I think she eventually, um, you know, left it. But she was talking about that idea of Friday night of Shabbos Kiddush, how in Orthodox Jewish families they let the children take little sips of wine, 
And um, she felt that this was really good, that the children are watching the adults consuming alcohol in a control, like in a controlled way and in a responsible way. And she says she thinks that that's also good. That knows if you if you have alcohol in the house and you don't abuse it, but you know, you consume it in a responsible way. And you might even I always, I always put it this way. I think it's, I think it's important. This is probably going to get me arrested. Well, you kids are all adults now, so they can't arrest me now. But um, I would always let you kids have a little, have little sips of alcohol because I felt, you know, you have to develop alcohol tolerance. <laughs> and if you and if you don't really, if you don't let your child drink any alcohol whatsoever until they're twenty one, they're not going to have any alcohol tolerance. Uh, I, I don't think that, that you know they're going to just go crazy with it. Oh well, no, that that I do agree with. That I do agree with. Where you know that you should be more exposed to alcohol in a more positive setting, in a controlled setting from the time you're young. Because if you're in like a, they actually had this article I read a while ago about how American American uh, young adults in the ages of stuff like 21 and whatnot, they binge drink a whole lot more than Europeans because Europeans get exposed to alcohol when they're 16. They can drink at a bar at, at 18 and it's a slow process where they're not totally, you know, fiending for it. But in America, it's like that because you can't have it until you're 21. Um, which brings me to the other question. You know, growing up seeing Zadie with alcohol, I think I've ever seen him have a beer or two, but was was he a drinker? Did he drink a lot? I know Tati never drank. No, no. Not. The only, my, my father, uh, every now and then, before going to bed, he might have a uh, he might have a glass of wine, but very seldom. And the wine that we drank <laughs> in those days, there wasn't the nice kosher wines we have today, where we have you know uh, champagne, we have a uh, you know, yeah, we, we have jeunesse, we have yeah, all these yeah. other like high quality, oh, and uh, yeah, some yeah, Golani we, wines, yeah. Mm -hmm. We have like really gorgeous, like really high rate wines. The only kosher wines available were either Morgan David or Manchevitz Heavy Sacramento. Ugh. Oh God! In fact, I still, in fact, to this day, when I walk in the store and I see those wines, I go, Bleh. "Yeah, no, because they're disgusting." How can you possibly buy those miserable tasting wines when you've got a whole more? You know, you got a whole market full of these really nice. Kedem also Kedem. Anyways, Kedem wines are trying to catch up. I mean, I like their I like their um their cream malagas, and I always like their cream malaga, and um yeah, their their variety of wines. But every Sacramento. Oh, so going back to childhood, I, that's why I wanted to bring up the um the way we were raised with finances. Yes. Okay. Yes, we we're talking about finances. And um, what happened was uh was your sister Hani, who's a CPA, um, asked started to ask me questions about my childhood and it jolted my memory and I there was um something I remember doing that I totally forgotten about we were encouraged at a very you're talking about oh my goodness you're talking about um like first grade kindergarten to save I remember when I was in first grade Mm -hmm. They, the, a girl from the sixth grade class, coming in with these two signs, and she sh she got in front of the class to announce Bank Day, and she held up one sign that says 
bank day tomorrow. And then she got up another sign and she said, this says bank day today. Now she says, when bank day is tomorrow, when you come into the classroom, this is the sign you're going to see on the board. That is to remind you to bring in either your dime or your, or your quarter to get your stamp to put in your savings book. And they had an arrangement. The schools had an arrangement with a bank that each child who wanted, this was a volunteer program, but every, mm-hmm. believe me, everyone volunteered for it. All the parents encouraged us, said, yes, you're going to do this. Each child was given a booklet. And if you, if you handed in a dime, they gave you a little pink stamp that you put in your booklet. If you handed in a quarter, you got a little blue stamp. Um, I got the pink stamps. <laughs> so, and at the end of the year, your whole bank would be, your booklet would be full. And that was your record for how much money you put into this account that the school set up for you with this bank. And this, you know, and you did this K through 12. Actually, no, first, it was first grade, first grade through 12. We did this first grade, through, not 12, I'm sorry, first grade through sixth grade in the school. And, um, you know, years later, I remember, you know, I later on, of course, I had more money to that account. And of course, eventually, um, when I graduated college was when I um, took that money and I bought a car and I also treated myself to a trip to Israel. So, and you were talking to our, my sister, your daughter, um, about how kids nowadays learn about money and finances? So when I told this to your sister, she said, wow. She says, kids don't learn money like that anymore. She didn't elaborate, but she said she was amazed. She well, said this was um this was what what they did to encourage us to save like that. And in the, but the thing is, in those days, passbook savings accounts really got you interest. The, the thing not is, like today, the today's thing is, passbook saving savings accounts get you like garnet. Well, that's what I was going to tell you. Like banks nowadays are treacherous with all their hidden fees, all their extra fees. It's nearly impossible. And you grew up in the most thriving economy America has ever seen. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of opportunities. I remember speaking to a few people about saving money and me personally about saving money. I couldn't save money until maybe about a couple of years ago because I was working literally paycheck to paycheck. And that was me graduating with a master's degree in architecture and planning, working for an architectural office. And I was living paycheck to paycheck. It's just I'm not, I'm it's just impossible, yeah. but it's just that's yeah. that's the frustrating thing. Like it took me a while to finally get to a point where I could finally save something. I could finally feel like I I I have something, but like most people nowadays, it's nearly impossible to save because everything is so expensive. It's ridiculous. I mean, when I was in co- I mean college scholarships, when I was in high school, anybody when I was in high school, anyone who honestly wanted to go to college could. They, there was all there was so much assist financial aid available and so many scholarships available. Yeah, well now Especially, it's yeah, and we, um now it's like all done on student loans and but it's really sad because it's like before you've even started life, you're already in debt. Yep. You're starting yep. life in it, which is which is which is horrible, which is sad. But actually, I could have gone to an Ivy League college. I was accepted to Goucher. Yes. 
Yes, I we could went have gone to, to Goucher, but they offered me um, half a scholarship. In other words, they offered me um, half of the scholarship, and I would have to, um, I would have to come up with the second half. Yeah. Uh, whereas um, if I'd gone to Towson, everything was covered, and so I just felt I did not want to start off life in debt. So, so I... as a result of that, I I worked I worked it when I was in Towson. You know, I got a scholar, I got scholarships. I worked also, and I saved my money. And <laughs> I get these calls now from you know these um shysters. Hey, we have a way for you to pay down your college debt. And I said to them, I didn't have debt in college. I made money in college. Goodbye. So so that's the thing where for me and and I I regret it to this day. And I have to just work through it and accept it. But it, in 2008, I finally finished my two years in Israel. And I went <laughs> one year at Morgan. And I decided to go to New York to finish up my bachelor's degree in Tomeunic Law, just to come, come, come together. And I was in Muncie. And I was trying to get a hold of you know, getting into these architectural universities in, in New York. And... It was going to be really expensive because I wasn't a New York resident yet, and I would have to wait a whole year if I was going to become a New York resident. And I was looking at about $120,000 in student loans to get into these places. And with the uh, business opportunities that I had, they just, to me at the time, didn't seem applicable. It didn't seem possible. So I took the safe route. Instead of taking a risk in New York, I took the safe route, stayed in Maryland, went to Morgan, stayed home, and did what I had to do. But I think a little bit of my education kind of hurt. Um, and for me, I guess the socialization in New York City, I definitely missed out on. But all of that were decisions being made because of 08 to 09 when the big recession hit. And things really started looking dicey financially. And I just couldn't see a possibility of me working and going to school at the same time if I was going to manage, you know, taking on this career. Yeah, I think we all make, unless, God forbid, unless, unless we're criminals and we're out to do harm, but as honest people, we all make the best decisions we can with the information we have. I don't think you made such a bad decision. Who knows? First of all, to graduate hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And would it really have made a difference in your field? It might not have. I saw, I, I found that out too, that had I gone to the Ivy league school and wound up in debt afterwards, you know what? It would not have made a bit of difference in my field. Not a, not a bit. Of, uh, the only difference it would have made is I would have been in debt, but I well, would have been at the same jobs. I would have been making the same salary. And you know something, I don't. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference by you. Well, for me, I mean, I I, I worked for this one architecture office, and one of the people that were th that was there went to Pratt, which was one of the schools I was planning on going to, and I found it interesting that I was in the same. I was in the same, you know, boat as them. But then I realized it also had to do with the connections. You 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 the places you go are the connections you make. And the higher end school, it's a nice piece 
it's nice on a piece of paper, but it's also the connections you make from that school that you can <laughs> excel more in your career. And and that's the other point where it's like I didn't make that many connections. Well, you know, when I was at at Morgan, I I was also I was I, I don't know I wasn't say I was socially inept. I just I didn't. I was kind of upset because I I I wanted to go to you know Maryland or I wanted to go to Pratt, but like it just wasn't the most feasible position for me. And everyone was I I don't want to say they were clicky, but you know, everyone had their own groups to hang out, hung out with. I had, you know, one friend of mine I was able to hang out with, but eventually he graduated and I was kind of like, okay, how do I socialize and whatnot? But I was just kind of tiptoeing around because I felt, in a way, I felt uncomfortable because I I was Jewish. The whole place was not, there wasn't any Chabad there. There was no Hillel there, of course, you know, so like I was kind of there like a fish out of water. And I'm just trying to, you know, make do with the people that are there and try to be friendly with them and and hang out with them. And, and you know, there was I definitely felt this this disconnect, you know, like there was this one this one time this one girl was talking to me and she was asking me why. Uh, why do Israeli soldiers kill Palestinian children? Oh, and I'm God. like, are you kidding me? And I just like flip my shit. I was like, what are you talking about? I got so mad at her and my friend like jumped in like explained things to her and was like you gotta chill and whatnot but i was just so upset because i'm like i'm here because it's my only option and i'm doing what i can to you know get my degree and, and, and bounce and like i'm dealing with stuff like this you know <laughs> and it's just like like so how so did you was your friend able to explain to her what the situation how did she accept what your friend said well it's kind of funny because it's like especially in, in today's climate people are all this question like what do we do with these anti-semites you know and like people are saying, like, we need to have a conversation. And I had a conversation <laughs> with her at the end. I actually had a conversation and we were talking about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And like, and she's like, well, my father said, I'm uh -huh. like, your father said, <laughs> like, where does he get this information? She's like, Al Jazeera. I'm like, great, <laughs> fantastic. The places that like really don't want like <laughs> Israel or Jews to look good. That's the place you go to. You know? I, guess I heard these guys one time on the radio. Um, I forgot what they were talking about. They were talking about some sort of is um, these news. The, it was like a talk show with like a group of um, the station manager and a group of um, like news analysts. And um, they were talking about something with a certain situation in Israel. So some anti-Semite called up, you know, spewing all this, uh, you know, vitriol against uh, Israel and the Jews. And so they all cracked up laughing and they said, here he is. There's one in every crowd. Where did you get your information? Hitler.com. And they all yeah. they, they, they just made a big joke out of it and laughed and hung up on the guy. You know, there's some people, true, there are some people who you can sit and have a conversation with. There are others who they they are so brainwashed that you can't even you can't even present the facts to them. You can't even get them to see reason. And um, uh, like you said, how do you handle anti? Well, when I was in college, uh, the way I handled anti-Semites would have gotten me arrested. Today. Yeah, because you punch them in the face or something like that. Like that's a yeah. thing. It's like nowadays. <laughs> nowadays, there's a camera everywhere. Everyone's looking at you. You know, like it, it's it's like you you have to have a conversation. You have to talk to them, and they're just yelling and screaming. Like there was this viral video that came out, I think, last week or this week. 
uh, this guy in an airport just screaming, hail Hitler, hail Hitler, like all this stuff. And everyone just standing there watching him, not doing nothing, but just watching him. And it's like either people are just stunned or they're complacent. And it's just sad, sickening and a little scary, too. Well, the thing is, too, with people like that, you don't want to make martyrs out of them. Sometimes the best thing to do is to ignore them. Yeah. Don't give them don't give them the attention that they're looking for. Well, that's and that's the frustrating thing. It's it's like. You, you you ignore them. They get louder. People come to them. People are influenced by them. You know what? Like, what can you really do? And, yeah, and I was, was I was reading this this book. I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm I just started reading it a couple of days ago. It's called People Like Dead Jews, and it was talking about how all these countries and all these people love Holocaust stories, love commemorating their Jewish heritage environment of like, you know, some synagogue that was there like a hundred years ago or a cemetery that's there or whatnot. Like there was this um place in China that all these Russian immigrants uh, fled from pogroms that came to. And the place eventually was like wiped out by the Japanese and then the Chinese Maoists. And like, Ooh. just like in the night, late 1990s, they started to renovate it because um, uh, I think the not the prime minister, but like one of the, the president of Israel was going to visit, you know, because he had a relative that was there at the time in the early 1900s. So they make it all nice and fancy for him, but they don't care, you know, or the Anne Frank house where there was a Jewish worker there that wanted to wear a yarmulke and they had an issue with it because they felt that it was too controversial. Or uh, or the fact that in the Anne Frank yeah. house. The um, they had all these languages with flags next to them, like American, like English was an American flag or British flag, French was a French flag, but Hebrew it was you know just the the picture of, of an olive and that was it. And they had a whole thing pushing mm. for you know like just put the Israeli flag up. So it's like people mm-hmm. love the idea of Jews dying and they like to feel sorry for themselves and feel hopeful for the environment, but they don't like the reality of what we are and who we are as an identity. Like we're our life isn't about suffering. Our life isn't about, you know, the Holocaust. We like that's a blip on our radar. You know, the whole point of our life is to to serve Hashem through Torah and mitzvos and and hopefully, you know, make this world a better place and make this place, you know, a, a, a heaven on earth. Like that's what we're here to do. And it's just it it drives me nuts and it just it's such a wild, wild thing that's going on right now. Well, I don't have any answers. It'll all come out in the wash eventually. Yeah. <laughs> eventually everything, you know, I was, um, I'm Burles. Well, you're talking about like um, the Torah and mitzvahs. I was um, listening to a Tanya Shear tonight. For those people who are just turning in, Tanya is basically, I guess you want to call it the Bible of Hasidic thought. It's, it's, um, it's a Kabbalistic it's, safer it's, written yeah, in the 1700s by the Alter Yeah, right. And so... That when we, you know, people don't understand when we do mitzvahs, when we take when we take a physical thing and do a mitzvah with it, we are actually converting the physical. We are busy. We are actually exposing the spiritual part of that physicality, and we are actually bringing down godly forces to the to the world to um exp- to exp- to basically expose that spirituality which is in the physical. In other words, we're not, we're not like, um, there's um, like some religions 
believe um, that this physical world is really nothing and that it's, um, you know, going to heaven, it's going after we live, it's going to the spiritual world that is really the, the eco, the main idea. In Judaism, we don't believe that. We believe that the physical is here for us to use for mitzvahs so that we can bring out the spiritualities. We actually bring out the spiritual godly sparks and, that are, that's in physicality. And the thing is, is that like people always look at, you know, right now the biggest stereotype going on about Jews running Hollywood, Jews in charge of this, Jews in charge of that, having all the money. And yeah, with all these rumors about us were true. Well, it's like this. It's like, <laughs> it's like, what do you say? Like, how, well, why are we successful? Well, I mean, we kind of are and we kind of aren't. And, you know, you want to know why we're successful. Well, follow what we follow. Do what we do. You know, there's no I, secret. We're not trying to hide yeah. it. I remember one time I was sitting, I was sitting down um, at the WIC office yeah. to get my vouchers for the to get my vouchers for the month. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it came out, but um, one of you know, needless to say, the the majority of the people that were sitting there were you know were blacks. This is you know the inner city in Baltimore. The majority of the population there is black, and um, I think I was reading a book, a Jewish book to um, the then the then little the then toddler, whoever the toddler was at the time. I think it might have been Yosef. And so, um, one of the people sitting around me, one of the black non-Jews sitting around me, you know, uh, was surprised to see that I was Jewish. He said, "You're Jewish," and I said, "Yes, I'm Jewish." And then I added. Of course, you know, all we Jews have money, which is why I'm sitting here with you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's going to be a real challenge for Jews, especially Jews in the media. Uh, like they're going to be in the forefront of defending, you know, defending us because they're the ones that people are going to be listening to. That's why you have people like, you know, you had John Stewart and Jerry Seinfeld reacting to Dave Chappelle's um, remarks. And they were trying to say, we should have a conversation. We should ha- start talking to each other. We should start expressing, you know, our concerns, our wants, our needs, and try to come to a, a medium. And I agree with that to a point, because the Rebbe was very much into saying, like, when it comes to anti-Semitism, you have to, you know, talk them heart to heart, you know, and 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 try to have a conversation. Um, but I think people are too scared to have a conversation in public. Everyone's behind their keyboards. And the problem with behind your keyboards is you try to have a conversation with somebody and it's there. They don't care. They, they, there really isn't anything that's that they have of, of interest with you. Um, that, and that's where like, I, I watch, I, I watch these, you know, videos and like the latest one was of Kanye West talking about how he admires Hitler and um, oh, whatnot. And the thing is this guy has like 85 million followers on Twitter. You know, like this guy has massive reach and mm-hmm. like his fans will legitimize whatever mm-hmm. they say. Like, like they're saying like, well, it's not all the Jews. It's just some of the Jews. It's just the Jews mm-hmm. in media. It's just this. And like you see them slowly trying to break down, like trying to legitimize, you know, anti-Semitism in their own right. And that's the scary part where it's just like they're it's getting to a point where like they're working themselves up and convincing themselves of of believing anti-Semitism. And it's like what's you can't. A, well, what's so scary about anti-Semitism? Let's face it, it's not just anti-Semitism. It says that we we have seen in our history over and over and over again that first it started out as like verbal anti-Semitism, yeah. and then it got rougher and rougher, and yeah. the, and finally 
led to pogroms and the Holocaust. And as Jews, we're scared because we know what anti-Semitism, we know what anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic remarks leads to in the end. We've, you know, we've, we've suffered through that. And so that's why we're very, very, you know. On edge. And, right, of course. And, and rightfully so. The thing is, is like, when do we leave? When do we bounce? When do we feel like it's this is just too much? We got to go. You know, when are your great? Did you ever ask your great grandparents when? When did they feel like it was time to go? No, I didn't because it was so. It was obvious. There were so many pogroms and so much discrimination. Again, in the you know, the um, the Russian government, like my you know made sure that um, Jews could not get ahead by, you know, imposing all sorts of taxes on the shtetl, um, having, you know, the Pale of Settlement where Jews were not allowed to travel beyond, I think, 50 miles beyond um, the shtetl. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so many laws, you know, that uh, Jews could not go into certain professions. They could be tax collectors, obviously. Yeah, and how, how that worked out. There was a lot of, yeah. And um, it just got to the point where, you know, it was obvious why they wanted to leave. And when, and things when they left, when you think about when they left, they left as teenagers. Oh, wow. Now, that's easy. Think about, that's easy, think about, Ima. Leaving as a teenager is the easiest thing. Yeah. You don't have any responsibilities. You don't yeah. have anything to worry about. You get up and go. Not only that, but not only, but teenagers, but we, you know, we've all been teenagers at one time. Yeah. And one of the characteristics of being a teenager is that, is that you're willing to take chances. Yes. You don't, you yes. don't care. I mean, like you said, you don't have any responsibilities. No, you know, you're willing to just cut and run. Like, I, oh, but the chances I took as a teenager, oh my God, I'm lucky, yep. I'm, lucky I'm, I'm lucky I'm alive to tell the story. I used to hitchhike. Oh yeah! Oh yeah, my I, I, gosh! I I would be I would be walking. There were some places I would walk. I'd be walking by myself, like one one o'clock in the morning or something, in some of the worst neighborhoods. I mean, gosh. Yeah, I mean, I remember I, I wasn't as much of a risk taker as a teenager. I was more calculated and, and a little reserved with that. I waited till I was in Israel to take my chances and and do what needs to get done. Um, but I know what you're saying. But but that's the thing. It's like. Like people, you know, are going to leave with the just the clothes on their back, you know, like we we're going to bounce. But the question is, is like, when is this? This is going to be another five more years and then we're going to go 10 more years, 20 more years. Like, yes, it's a really, it's a really like, good question. What's, when do we like, know? When do we know it's time to leave? And, and well, I'm, the Rebbe gave a hint. You said once they remove God from their money. Um, the Rebbe said as long as. We have in God we trust in our coinage. Nothing will happen to this country, and I think that was a hint. Yeah, ah. the day that they you know, take it off. That's I guess that's the day we bounce. There was one. There was a. I was thinking about R- um, out of time. A, okay, I was thinking about a conversation very quickly that um, the Rebbe had with um, Sharon, and Sharon said this is before Sharon became um, Prime Minister of Israel when he was still the head of the army there, the head of the Air Force, I think. And the, Sharon said to the Rebbe, hey, if you're fighting the war of Mashiach, uh, don't you think that as the general, you should be in front leading the charge? In other words, he was telling the Rebbe he should be living in Israel. And the Rebbe said to Sharon, yes, but a captain is the last one to leave a sinking ship. 
And when I heard the Reb, when I heard that story about what the Rebbe said, it kind of sent chills. Thank you for listening to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. Please send us feedback and comments on our Facebook page and like and subscribe on YouTube. I know I would like it, and my mother would too.